One of the most gratifying parts about parenting is seeing your children come to a realization, an aha moment of something they previously did not understand. I'll never forget watching this happen for our daughter when she was about two or two and a half years old. We were sitting in our dining room with all our neighbors from our little teeny cul-de-sac in North Carolina. <clears throat> all of the kids had, a, had just attempted sledding on a half of inch of snow that we had gotten, um, and we were drinking hot chocolate. Suddenly, I see my daughter getting this confused look on her face. She was looking at two brothers who lived up the street from us, and she just kept looking from one to the other with almost like a scowl. She was working hard to understand. I could tell she was confused, scared almost. And I didn't think much of it, and the kids all left. And as the brothers left the house, she turned to me and she said, what are those? There's two of them. <laughs> Eventually, it dawned on me. I had taken for granted a category Allie had never been given, twins. They're twins, I said, and then we explained the concept of twins. The next time Allie saw the fourth over twin, she was much more relaxed and comfortable. I think she'd seen them, but not together, so she just thought it was one person. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a category for something in order to understand it. Sometimes, as we'll see today, you may have a category for something, but the way in which you understand it is not at all the way in which someone else is using the word. And this is pretty important when it comes to communication. Just think about relating with your coworkers or family members. When you use a certain word, if it's not what they mean, it can cause a lot of problems, misunderstandings, unmet expectations, disappointment even. It's why wise parents of young children don't say anymore, we're on vacation. They say, we're having some family time because they know not to expect sitting on the beach, relaxing. There's no such thing when there are small children involved. It's not vacation, it's family time and it is still good. In today's passage, Jesus is correcting his listeners' understanding of a certain category. He's nearing the end of his time on earth. The story we're going to hear occurs just before Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of praise to a crowd, and then within one week is arrested, put on trial, and put to death. Jerusalem is the end of the road for him. So he's got to be sure his followers understand what he means by certain key terms he's used throughout his ministry. So, just so we're clear here, as we've seen in our series on the parables, Tell Me a Story, many times when Jesus told parables, the point is clear. Some parables are poignant stories with a powerful punch. It's pretty clear what the main point is. Even if living it is hard, as much as warning, or as with the warning against greed last week, at least the meaning's clear. Other parables, I am sorry to say, are much less clear. Instead, their lack of clarity is often what engages us more deeply as we turn over and over in our minds what it might possibly mean. And this is one such parable. I've been reading it for quite some time and I'm still turning it over in my mind. I'm still even unclear about some aspects of it. 
So I want to set some realistic expectations at the outset here. If the end of this sermon leaves you with unanswered questions, causing you to look up this story or read other parts of the great story, the Bible, while frustrating to you, perhaps I have done my job. Before I tell you the story Jesus told from Luke 19, I need to tell you another story that most certainly would have been familiar to Jesus' audience when he told this story. Some events are so central to a nation's history that they're remembered for years to come, encapsulated by keywords. For example, if I say the word Watergate, most people here, especially those old enough to remember it or those who've studied U.S. history, would know I'm referring to a political scandal in the early 1970s that ultimately led to a call for the impeachment of President Nixon and his subsequent resignation. Similarly, in first century Palestine, key events took place in that nation's history that evoked strong memories and emotions even years later. Those who've studied Jesus as the master teacher often remark about how he used everyday examples from life to make his points, and that's true. But the story we're going to hear today, scholars agree, is almost certainly referencing a historical event the entire nation experienced. If Jesus' audience would have recalled this incident when he told the story, it would probably help us to know it too as we seek to understand his story. So... Here's the story, as told by the most reputable Jewish historian of the day, Josephus. You may recall Jesus was born in Judea when King Herod was reigning, Matthew 2, 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now when King Herod, remember King Herod was the guy who ordered the execution of all the babies under the age of two because he didn't want a rival to the throne when Jesus was born. So now when King Herod dies in 4 BC, he had three sons, and each of them rivaled each other for the throne. In the first century, even if you had hereditary claim to the Jewish throne, because Rome was occupied by Jewish territory, you had to make the trek to Rome and persuade Caesar to make you king. Archelaus, shown here, Herod's son, was not a shoe-in for good reason. He had killed 3,000 Jewish people before going to Rome to try to claim the throne so as to minimize his own opposition. As he made the trek to Rome, a delegation of Jewish people argued to Caesar against him, we don't want him to be king. Unsuccessful in securing his kingship, instead he was made tetrarch, sort of like a governor over the provinces of Judea and Samaria. He set up a palace in Jericho and ruled for about 10 years from 4 BC to 6 AD. Now we know about Archelaus, both from secular Jewish historian Josephus, and he's also mentioned in Matthew 2, 19 to 22, where the angel appears to Joseph in a dream while he's in Egypt and tells him, King Herod has died, it's safe now to return to Israel. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, so he withdrew to Galilee where there was a different ruler. Now, all that story happened about 30 years prior to Jesus telling this story, so it's still fresh on the minds of the Jewish people. The early 70s, 2018, Watergate. When Jesus is telling this story, 
it's fresh on their minds. Now, as we saw last week, the stories Jesus tells will make more sense if we read them in their context. So today's story begins, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. So what is the this that had just happened? If you look at Luke 19, 1 to 10, you'll see the story takes place in Jericho. And it's about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Because he was so short, I feel his pain, he had to climb a tree. He's curious. He wants to know more about Jesus. And what happens is quite remarkable, quite unexpected, really. There he is, anonymous in the crowd, and just as Jesus passes the spot where Zacchaeus is standing, Jesus initiates with him, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. The people nearby start muttering. That's literally the word they use. Why is Jesus going to his house? Doesn't Jesus know Zacchaeus is the least worthy person to host Jesus? But the people are proven wrong. For Zacchaeus has a change of heart, commits to follow Jesus, and makes right all the wrong he'd done prior to following Jesus. Jesus shouts exuberantly, today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So Jesus initiates with Zacchaeus. Then, verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He tells the story, and then in verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And what happens next is that Jesus rides a little donkey or colt into the city of Jerusalem. Two shouts from a crowd, Luke 19, 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. One of the most basic subjects Jesus talked about in his ministry was the kingdom of God. He kept talking about a day when all would be made right, when God would rule the world with justice and mercy and goodness. And the closer he got to Jerusalem, the more expectations of those around him were raised. Jerusalem was the capital city. It was where the temple had been. It was the center of spiritual and political life. If the king were going to rule, it'd be in Jerusalem. After seeing Jesus teaching integrity and miracles, they wanted him to take the throne. And he talked about it so often, his kingdom being at hand. Now, walking towards Jerusalem, the people around him are ready for him to claim his kingship. They're ready for a king. They're ready to see his kingdom come. This notion of Jesus being a king was pretty crucial to his identity. After this passage today, that word king will get used five times in the next five chapters of Luke, once positively in the passage I just said, and four times negatively, two during his trial, are you the king of the Jews? He's asked in Luke 23, two and three, and twice on the cross on Luke 23, 37, and 38. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Indeed, the sign 
above Jesus as he hung on the cross dying was, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus is a king, all right. But not the kind of king they think. He's got to undo years of preconceptions of what a king is like. And so he tells them this parable as a way of contrasting the kings of their day, the rulers they are familiar with, like Archelaus, with the kind of ruler he is and will be. Luke 19, 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was gonna appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for his servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, Yamina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, Yamina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so when I came back it would have collected interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. I see three ways in which Jesus is contrasting his own kingship with that of the rulers of their day, like Archelaus. First, their kings ruled for a limited place and time. Archelaus ruled over the regions of Judea and Samaria. That was a very particular geographic rule. Furthermore, their kings ruled for a limited time. Jewish history records Archelaus' rule from 4 BC to 6 AD. It starts and it stops. This is all the people know about rulers. They have authority over a limited area or land, and they have authority for a limited time and rule. Not so with my kingdom, Jesus counters. He is a king who will rule over all the earth. His rule will not be limited by where his palace is, be it Jerusalem or anywhere else. And his reign will not be limited temporally, Remember how Luke starts his biography of Jesus when the angel gives Mary the news she will have a baby. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will rule over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. There's king, Jesus says, like you're familiar, and there's king, like I am. 
where no one will be able to put a stop to the praise. When the Pharisees tell Jesus to quiet the crowd when he's riding that donkey, he replies, even if they do, the stones will cry out. You can't keep me from receiving praise. Jesus' kingship has no geographic or temporal bounds. Second, their kings ruled from a posture of power. The third servant articulates this as, I knew you were a hard man, taking out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. Verse 21. Rulers then, as now, often think they are above the law. They often extort those from those who have very little. Not so in my kingdom, Jesus counters. He rules from a place of humility. That's the point of the symbolism of him riding on a young donkey or colt into Jerusalem. Kings generally rode horses in their inauguration day parade. A sign of strength, power, might. Jesus, however, rides a donkey in for his procession. And Matthew's account of the story in Matthew 21.5 quotes Zechariah 9.9 to make clear the symbolism. See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's how Jesus advises his own followers to rule in Matthew 20, 25 and Luke 22, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority with them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Third, their kings often obtained power by force. In the story Jesus tells, the last verse has the ruler ordering the slaughter of all who refused his rule. And remember, Archelaus did just that. He like most kings of his day, killed his rivals to the throne before making his way to Rome to claim his kingship. Jesus' kingdom couldn't be more opposite. For starters, when the guards make their move to arrest Jesus in the garden in Luke 22, 49 to 51, the disciples shout, Lord, should we strike out with our swords? Without waiting for an answer, one disciple whips out his sword, cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. And in what is perhaps one of the best comic strip scenes in the Bible, Jesus rebukes them, no more of this. And picking up the man's ear off the ground, he heals him and puts it back on him. Point made clearly. Jesus will not claim his kingdom with a sword. In fact, as the story unfolds, the only slaughtering that will occur will be his own. He will sacrifice himself. He will give up his own spirit, even as the final words include, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus rules not through force, but through sacrificial love. Now, I realize that if you've heard this parable before, this may not be how you have heard it explained. Very often, this parable is often taught that Jesus is the king who is going off to a distant land to claim his kingdom. And the emphasis is placed on us being faithful servants in the meantime who continue to do his work in his absence. And I don't think that's a bad interpretation. 
especially if it focuses on the rest of the story about Jesus as told by the biblical writers. But I do get concerned if we press that analogy too far. Parables are a unique literary device and we can get into trouble if A, we try to make every detail in the story line up and symbolize something being overly allegorical and B, if we take words of parable characters and assume they are describing Jesus' theology. Take verse 27, for example. These are the words of the parable king, not the direct teaching of Jesus. And as one scholar noted, teaching not validated by and conformable with non-parabolic material cannot be taken as describing Jesus' theology. He continues, Parables are prophetic instruments, and this is prophetic language used for shock and to force thought, and is not to be brought across unchanged to reality. It's to grab our attention, to get us thinking. I think we can agree it sure meets those objectives. For me, at least, insofar as I understand it today, it seems more likely Jesus is telling us in this parable how he is not like the ruler's in the first century, that his way is very different. His, power, his way is not what we expect. Many leaders rule with power or force or violence or harshness, but not Jesus. Oh, as a leader, he has power, make no mistake, but he does not use that power to push others aside. He does not force his way into power. King? Yes. Archelaus? No. Lord? Yes. Lording over? No. Powerful? Yes. Power hungry? No. This king beats his enemies through self-sacrifice. Who does that? No one ruled like that then. All of a sudden, we, like those first listeners, have to adjust our expectations of ruler and king. Furthermore, if Jesus is the image of God, if we know what God is like by looking into the person of Jesus, then what does this say about the nature of our God? Jesus is saying, God is less like an angry, harsh, demanding ruler with high standards and more like a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now I realize if you've heard this parable many times before, this may be hard for you to accept what I'm saying. You may not yet understand it. I am still trying to figure this one out myself. Or you may totally disagree with my take on this and that is fine. You don't have to accept this view. But even if you disagree with what I think Jesus is doing in this parable, I think you would still agree, based on the rest of the witness of the Bible, that these are still accurate statements about how Jesus rules. So for the moment, as we close here, let's just assume that's what Jesus is doing here. Let's assume Jesus tells this parable to show how he is not like the rulers they are used to in the first century. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations of what it means to be ruler and king. So, we must ask ourselves, 
How does Jesus not match up to the expectations we have of him? How does God not match up to the way in which we expect him to be? And if we may not have accurate expectations of who he is, where are we missing him? Where might he be showing up and evident and we're just missing it because we have a different concept of the category? As I've been thinking about it, I think I'm the opposite of those disciples. The disciples thought the kingdom would come at once. They had to have their expectation adjusted. It's gonna be a while. 2,000 years later, I think I'm sold on the it's gonna be a while part. I need to be more reminded of it will come part. Because I don't actually live my life like that's true. I get overwhelmed by the bills or the decisions to make or the activities of the household. I listen to the news. I listen to a friend's burdens and I get discouraged. I see people all around me on a personal and a global scale and I think, look at what they are getting away with. When will there be justice? Or I hear of yet another dear friend facing cancer or some other awful disease and I cry out with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? I live in a world where so much of my life is rooted in only what I can see. And I need to remember that while it doesn't seem like it, God is still on the throne, but he is a different kind of ruler. He is a king, and his good kingdom is coming. It may be a while, but it is still coming. Maybe for you it's something more personal. Maybe you need to check your vision of how God really is with his character, not some preconception of him we have created based on our own experiences. Many people think God is only out to choose certain people from the crowd, people who are good enough or gifted enough or charming enough. But in fact, he often stops at the spot in the crowd where the least likely candidate is standing, even if he's up in a tree. And to any nearby scoffers, Jesus retorts, I have come to seek and save what was lost. I don't know what your view of God is, but I do know God has come to seek and save all who are lost, confused, alone. Jesus told them this parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He didn't want them to think he wasn't really a king just because he wasn't going to rule right away or in the exact way they had anticipated. How might we be missing God's rule in our lives simply because it doesn't line up with the timing or the way in which we had expected him to work? Let's pray. Oh God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and the willingness to conform our expectations to your reality, to who you really are. For Jesus' sake and for our freedom, amen.